And what a privilege it is to be here. And uh, I tell you what, I love the Blooms. I love all of them. They're just, even Bonnie. They're all. They're wonderful people. And uh, I tell you what, these boys that they've got are growing. I just can't believe I looked back there and thought I was looking at Justin, and it's the other little one who's not little anymore. And uh, my goodness, it's so good to see them. And what a blessing they were when, uh, when they were in my church there in Alabama. I remember going to Brother Paul asking a big request. We needed somebody to work with the teenagers, you know, the young people. And I was a little hesitant. I thought, I don't know, the, you know. But I went to my own kids, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about asking Mr. Bloom to be the one to work with our young people. And my son, who was about 13, 14 years old, who's old dad, that'd be great. He's cool. He's real cool. And I thought, well, if he's cool, that's the, that, that'll work. That'll work. And so uh, we got cool man back there. And he did. They both worked with our teenagers and did a tremendous job with them. And I just uh, love them and thank God for them. What a blessing they were to me. And they took care of us. They had no doubt the gift of hospitality. And so many preachers we would have in, they would take care of them and, and all. And it was such a blessing. To, and then Brother Bloom would come through. And I always had him to preach when he came in. And I uh, always enjoyed his messages. He'd bring those messages on prophecy. And I mean, it got everybody fired up. And he uh, has always been a blessing to me. And I love being around him. Anytime he... Uh, and I were together. I, it was my chance to pick his brain. I'd ask all the questions because we had a Christian school and many ministries like that. And I would always get sound advice. And I really appreciate that so much. And it is an honor for me to be here. I'm telling you, this is a great crowd, beautiful church, wonderful facilities. I tell you, it's, uh, it's just I, you can only see so much on pictures on the Internet. And it's good to be in person and see it. And it's a glorious thing. And uh, I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I am from East Tennessee. Grew up in the sticks, uh, boonies, whatever you want to call it. It took us 20 minutes just to get into town to find bread and milk, unless you went to the farm and got it. But, uh, yeah, bread and milk is how we had to go to town to get that. And um, grew up fishing, working on the farm, all that stuff. Went to Pensacola Christian College. And uh, they enjoyed when I first got there. They, I, in fact, I would gather a crowd. My friends, roommates, they would, they would say, hey, everybody, come here, come here. And in the common area where all the students hung out, they would bring a crowd and say, hey, David, say something. <laughs> what do you want me to say? Ah! They'd laugh and have a big time. And there were times they would ask me to pray for the meal, and I'd get up, you know, and everyone's ready. And I would pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, bless the food. Oh, God, help us today. And I'd pray just from my own heart. And when I would finish praying, they'd all just break out in laughter. It was humbling to go to college and go away from home. And, uh, and then I started learning how to say words properly. I remember even Mrs. Horton herself would say, David, come here, please. And we were training, getting ready for the ensembles, going out and giving our testimonies. And she would say, would you say the word thank you with me? Say it with me. Thank you. Thank you. No, no. Thank you. Say it with me. And she would work with me like that a little bit, you know, and others. And so when I would get home back to Tennessee, they'd all look at me strange and say, where did you come from? 
What's this fella stuff you're talking about, you know? And what's this night, good night? Uh, quit saying that. And so I found a, I was a man without a country. I would go one way and be made fun of, go back to the home, and I wouldn't accept it there. So I've been all over. But uh, hopefully I'm among friends today. And uh, try to learn a little as you go, no doubt about it. But enough of that. It is so good to be here. And I look forward to preaching to you and uh, looking what God has for us today. Would you turn to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. Very familiar story, as you would know here, about what we call the prodigal son. The prodigal son. But I want you to gather the context of the passage. Notice verse 1 of Luke 15. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now stop right there. We know that Christ is getting ready to give us a parable. In fact, he gives three in this one setting. They're there to hear him, but not to learn anything. They're there to with a skeptical eye and intent of heart, learn how they might trap him. They're hoping he will mess up and say something that's contradictory to their tradition so that they might be able to, again, murmur, as the text says, and complain and try to show that this man is with fault. And so they're there in that, uh, in that setting and it's not what he preaches, but this time their legitimate, they think, legitimate argument now is not what he's preaching, but who he is preaching to. It's the company that he's keeping. And notice it says here that Jesus, verse 1, drew unto him there publicans and sinners. It was the crowd he was hanging with. They did not like. Why? Pharisees are like the untouchables. You you, you have to be careful with how close you get to the sinner. And they, of course, kept their distance because they knew that they were looked up to. They knew they had to maintain a certain status. They were the most important of the Jewish society. And so to maintain their air of religion and, uh, and, and high um, uh, society and all of that, they kept their distance. And yet here's this one from Nazareth that's hanging around them, spending time with them, eating with them. This will not do. This can't be. And now they believe they have a legit argument. Well, the Lord takes the occasion. In fact, hinged on this, he begins to open up for everyone who was listening that day a parable, mainly three parables, that gives us God the Father's heart in regards to those who are lost. We have the lost coin. We have the lost sheep. You remember the 99? And we've got the one, the lost prodigal, who ran away from home, right? Jesus is opening up to them, understanding this is how the Father values, loves, and accepts, and desires to save the lost. I want to tell you, we need to get and capture again a lost theology in our church, in our worship, and in our evangelism. I mean, that's why we have missions. That's why we do faith promise. That's why we do it. Because God the Father loves the lost. 
He gave His only begotten Son that He might win and, and, and bring back and redeem a lost world dying and going to hell. And so you have here Jesus opening up the story to give us the Father's heart in and toward the lost. And then we bring ourselves in the story. He gets to, and our focus being today, on the younger of this father who had two sons. And the younger, yes, we know him as the prodigal. And let's drop down to verse 12 and read about it. The Bible says, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that followed to me. And he divided unto him his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And when he went and joined himself into a citizen of that country, he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as thy hired servants, one of thy hired servants. Verse 20, and he rose, came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field and as he came and drew nigh to the house and heard the music and dancing, he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with thy, my friends. And as soon as this thy son was come, and which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. And it was meet or necessary that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. As you know from this great story, we have this boy who's full of himself. Full of his sin. It's in his heart. It's bound. All he wanted to do was get away from home. Evidently at home, he wasn't comfortable in living in his sin. This father had high standards. This father had a holy home and was going to run it right. And the boy knew he couldn't get away with shenanigans while he's at home. 
So in a shameful manner, he went to his father and said, give me, and basically, my inheritance. Let me get out of here. And he basically wanted out so he could live it up. The Bible says he went after the wild living. That's what he did. Then he finds himself on the bottom. And the Bible says this wonderful phrase, one of the most glorious parts of the whole story, I think, is in verse 17, where the Bible says, and when he came to himself. You know, I'm interested in that. We can't help people until they come to themselves. Nobody gets the help of God until they come to the end of themselves. God doesn't force himself upon you. He doesn't shake you. And sometimes I feel like I want to to get people's attention. But God doesn't do that. He may dog your trail. He may bring conviction. The Holy Spirit may sweetly woo you to the Father. But I want to tell you something. You will come when you come to the end of yourself. And that's what I'm interested in. This prodigal, he got away. He got away. He left and he's, his agenda was far, far from home. He left his father. He left his family. He left the farm. And he went into a far country, the Bible says. Joined him up, himself up with another citizen of that country. He got so far that he was among, if you will, aliens. Those of another country. He wanted out. He wanted to be on his own. And he got exactly what he wanted. He got away. But there were some things he just couldn't get away from. Oh, he traveled far, far, far away. But there were some things, even though he attempted to travel and attempted to get away from it all, there were some things this prodigal could never get away from. And I want to share from my heart what the prodigal could never leave. Why am I interested in this? Why am I interested in this? I find here from this glorious text what brings them home. What brings them home? I'm interested in that. Why? You know as well as I know there's a dearth in this country in regards to the 20-somethings that are leaving our churches. Oh, yes, I, I've been thinking of this. It may not be true here, but it's pretty common in other places throughout our country. Not long ago, George Barna put out a survey, a reputable group. They surveyed nearly three, he says here, nearly three out of five young Christians, 59%, disconnect either permanently or for an extended period of time from the church by age 15. In other words, by age 15, they've made up their minds they're done with this. Done with this. Recently, the surveys came back out, again from George Barna, that said this, Barna Group, have shed light on this trend examining those 18 to 29. They used to identify themselves closely with faith and church. All right? So the estimates here are not with those who are lost and out of church. These are the ones who used to identify with church, regularly attended God's house. Between high school and turning 30, 43% of these once active millennials drop out of regular church attendance. Now, from Sunday school this morning, Dr. Bloom brought out, and I thought it was so, so appropriately, that many are going to public colleges where they're being taught to question their faith, and that's a part in it that's drawing, I believe, many away from the church 
with the liberal and the modern mentality. But here we have the amounts here. 43% of one's active millennials are now no longer in the house of God. That adds up in, a, in America over 8 million 20-somethings that said, I am done with church. Now, I used to think, why are they leaving? And there's been books on why are they leaving. It's worth our reading. It's worth our research, no doubt about it. But from the text here, I want to tell you why they leave. It's what's bound up in their heart. It's what, it's what they've been wanting for some time. By age 15, many have already made up their mind. And when they get the first chance, they're gone. Why is that? It's what's in their heart. This, this father, you would see in the text, he gives that boy what he's asking for. Gives him that inheritance. Lets him take it. You say, well, why didn't he take a stand? Why didn't he say, no, son, you're going to work for your money? No, no, no. In the culture, this was his inheritance. It's what belonged to him. He's supposed to receive it when the father dies, but in a shameful, disgraceful way. And he's saying, in essence, I don't care, daddy, if you're alive or dead. I want it now. I want it now. And so the father gave him, because the father knew what was bound in his heart. Knew what was bound in his heart. And I'm going to tell you something. I believe this father knew what that boy would exactly he would do. Boy, fathers know their sons. And he knew what was going to happen. Doesn't surprise me that the father, later on in the story, a great way off, sees that boy coming. That father was looking. That father was praying. That father was expecting. He knew how this thing would play out. He really did. But I want you to see something. I want you to see this. What was it? That brought him back. I know it's what's bound in their heart. And why they leave. I think we can all be pretty clear on that. Sin and selfishness bound in the heart. Is why people are no longer interested in the church house of God. But I want to tell you something. I want to find out what brings them back. That's who we're after. It's bringing them back. It's when they come to the end of themselves. I want to see that in our churches. And what a glorious thing that is. When God calls them home. What the prodigal could never leave. Number one, he could not leave his father's love. Now he wanted out of the house. He wanted to be on his own. But he could never escape an older man back home that loved him with all of his heart. He knew that. Why do I know that? Because when that boy came to the end of himself, when he found himself half starved in the hog pen, his first order of business in getting right was to make things right with good old dad. He said, I will arise and go where? I will arise and go get another job. I will arise and go get something to eat. Man, I'm starved. No, I will arise and go to my father. He wanted to get right with dad. Something in him reminded him that when he got to the bottom, the first order of business, I must go home and make things right with Dad. Well, I want to tell you, when the Holy Spirit brings you to the end of yourself, your vision is clear. You know what it takes to get right with God. Nobody has to name your sin in a sermon. Nobody has to tell you and look you in the eye and tell you where you're going wrong. When the Holy Spirit convicts your heart, hey, it's clear. You know the order of business. You know you must get right with God. And you know the sin that's there. We're not playing games with an all-seeing God. No. And this boy had to make things right with the Lord. Oh, listen. 
How did he know that dad would receive him back? How did he know that? I want to tell you something. He knew it because of the heart of that father. That father loved him. And that love, that love transcended all expectations that you would find in this story. You see, not only did he break his father's heart. I mean, he broke his heart. But he also went against all culture expectations. You see, in the East, in Middle East countries, they operate from what is called a shame-honor society. A shame-honor society. You've heard of honor killings, right? Well, it's because of their their, their culture. In a shame-honor society, when one disowns or violates the family and family name, the expected order of that family is to disown them to regain their honor. That's why you have mercy killings. In America, that just blows our mind. But in the Far Eastern countries, it's the only way that certain families can regain their honor. They must disown their own family to keep the honor in their own home. Now, in America, in Western societies, it's different. That which is morally right and wrong often is determined by law. We are a law society. If it's against the law, if you drive over 55 in a 55 mile an hour zone, you will suffer the consequences. You can't debate. You can give all kinds of excuses. But if you broke the speed limit, I know I'm stepping on toes right now, but when you break the speed limit, you've broken what? It's the law. The law says you're guilty. And so our whole society is set up, and, and sometimes morals go out the door because we hang on to the letter of the law, if you will, and forget the heart of it. And so a lot of times in Western societies like ours, it's all about law. But in Eastern societies, it's about honor. This boy has dishonored his father's name. You know, that's why I believe when he was contemplating on going home, he never entertained a thought, I'm going to go home and get things right with dad and become a son again. Being a son never came to his mind. He said, maybe I could go home and just be like one of the hired servants. That's all I want, just a hired servant. In his mind and in the cultural expectation, there is no way he could go back to being a son. He has disowned that one. So in his mind, no longer son. He has crossed the line. That also explains why the elder is so angry. I used to get on to the elder son when I'd read the story. In fact, I read it today. And I often thought, you know, why is he so, I don't know, pouty? Why is he doing And it's because this son is watching his own dad stoop and break all laws and culture in receiving that filthy, dirty, adulterous living boy back into his house. He had his living among the prostitutes. That was his argument. How could you, Dad? In essence, Dad, you're embarrassing all of us by your reaction. See, it was the culture expectation. This elder son has an argument. And his argument is, you can't do this, Dad. You're breaking all the expectations by taking this boy back. I'm sure there were other motivations for his anger. In fact, he starts comparing about, I never got a party. But I just think it was in so far from their thinking. This boy has messed up. He stays out. But there's one factor that changed it all. Love. 
You see, the love of a father transcends all shame, all guilt, all sin. Love does that. Do you know why Christ died on an old rugged cross? But God committed His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death was God the Father's expression and proof of love. For God so loved, so loved, hey, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It was the love of a Father that transcended. But many times we don't gather the thought on that completely. Do you know you were the guilty one that Christ died for? Do you not realize that you were the one that caused His death? When Peter was preaching there in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Would you turn there please? Look at Acts chapter 2. Very interesting text here. Acts chapter 2. I'm watching my time. Got to watch. Got to go fast. But Acts chapter 2. Notice what he says here in verse 23. And him, rather, verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Look at the next word in verse 23. Right there in the middle. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now wait, 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 wait. Who was the guilty ones that put our Lord on the old rugged cross, took those big old spikes and that huge hammer and went pow, 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 right through those hands? Who, who did that? We would all say, well, it was the Romans. The Romans did that. Those cruel, ruthless tyrants. Those bullies, if you will. It was the Romans that did that. But, but when Peter preaches, he looks at a Jewish crowd and says, Ye with wicked hands have slain the Son of God. We were the guilty ones. In other words, and there's other texts. In fact, there's lots of wonderful texts I want to give to you. You've, you've got to see this again and again. But these wonder, wonderful texts tells us who the guilty ones were. I want you to look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 17, And now, brethren, I want not that through ignorance did ye it, as did your own rulers, but those things which God had, had showed by the mouth of his, all of his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of the refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and ye and he rather shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. In other words, it's you. The rulers, yes, the Roman rulers, they crucified him. You must repent. Why? We were the guilty ones holding the hammer. We often say, yeah, I would probably want to be one of the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. But I want to tell you, friend, we were the guilty ones holding the hammer. We wanted rid of him once and for all. That's the disposition of our sin toward a holy son of God. Yet, the Father's love transcended all of that. We were the guilty ones, and yet God still loves us. God still reaches out to us. God still longs to save us. I don't understand that. I just proclaim it and say what it is, and that is amazing grace. How sweet the sound has saved an old wretch like me. Number two, 
Not only was it his father's love, but he couldn't get away from simply the blessings of home. The blessings of home. In other words, notice if you go back to our text, go back to Luke chapter 15, would you please? Luke 15, notice if you would in verse 17. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? You know what he's saying? The memories back home. I look here, I see a pig pen. I'm starving to death, but when I think of home, when I think of home, I think of blessings. I think of table spread. I think of plenty that even the servants have, what? Enough to spare. In other words, there's always leftovers. Always leftovers. Friend, I want to tell you something. As far as he traveled, he couldn't get away from the memory of what it was like back home. You see, that was his point of reference that he could not escape. And I want to tell you something. Our churches need a point of reference, especially for our young people. That we could say, I remember when God moved on that, on that, uh, that youth rally, that Saturday afternoon youth rally. I remember when the preacher was up preaching, how that when he made the altar call, I remember in my mind's eye how they went to the altars and sought and pleaded and repented and gave their heart to Christ. See, I have those memories, and I know you do too. And no matter how far I get, I can still recall the days that while my papa was up preaching and while other preachers were still proclaiming God's word, some didn't even wait for the invitation. They'd come a-running because they were such under conviction of sin. Those are some glorious times. Those are, those are moments I call God moments where he does something and you don't get away from it. I tell you, when you experience the presence of God, that's something you just don't say, well, you know, it was a good service. Everybody's a little bit excited. Not when the holy hush of God's presence comes into the place. It's real. It's so real. And it becomes a point of reference for you. You ever had God to move in your life? Do something for you? Bring you through and answer a prayer request? Well, you know what happens. When you go through hard times in the future, you recall that moment. You say, now God, I remember how you helped me the last time. And I know you'll see me through. That's why it's good to count your blessings. Name them one by one. Why? It's to remind us that God is to still be trusted. And God is to still be followed. Why? He has blessed me in the past and I know he'll see me through. We stay with it. Why? We know a God who has blessed us. And I can go back in my heart and mind and remember many times what God did for me. Well, I remember where I got saved, when I got saved. That's a glorious moment. I was just a sophomore in high school. Thought I was on top of the world, you know, with my popularity and sports achievements and all of that stuff. And yet I was lost and on my way to hell. God began to deal with me. You know where he started dealing with me? I was sitting in a Bible class, first hour of the morning, as I recall. And we're sitting there in a Bible class and the Holy Spirit, through that class started knocking on my heart's door convicted me of my sin and you know what scared me this is what scared me if eternity for me starts right now where would i spend it where would i spend it in fact i'll tell you how it happened i'll just tell you my teacher back then decided he would play us a record by the famous evangelist at that time i know this is shocking 
Jack Venimpi. There was one time among the fundamental circuits, he was quite the preacher. And boy, he had a sermon called War with Russia. So the teacher put on the record. Record is a black thing about this big around. Got a hole in the middle. You put a little needle. I know I can't even explain it. It's way too far to try to explain. Very high tech. Very high tech. They were vinyl. All right, anyway. We put those records on. He did. And the preacher was preaching. And I didn't know who Jack Finippi was. I didn't know what it meant. But he started talking about if, if, if America gets into a conflict, a war with Russia, and the bombs go off. He said the American broadcasting system has their emergency procedures to the point where you would basically have seven minutes of preparation. Seven minutes. Probably faster today, but at that time, seven minutes you would have before they land. They even showed, I've seen on TV, spots across America where they showed the zones where the bombs are likely to fall. I remember seeing that in my mind's eye. And where I grew up in East Tennessee, we were right there at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where they make the bomb, you know. My grandma said, they make that bum over there. <laughs> but uh, I knew we were in a strike zone just from the common knowledge. And when he said seven minutes is what you get. Seven minutes. Seven minutes. The Holy Spirit of God took that seven minutes and just began to drive it in my soul. Where would you be in seven minutes? It haunted me. I went throughout the day, walking about. My friend said, Dave, what's wrong with you, man? Okay, I'm fine. Seven minutes. Seven minutes. It just stayed with me all day. Convicted my heart. Finally, that night, I, I kind of dismissed the thought we were going to go to church that night because they were having a revival. My daddy was part of the music ministry there. So we went to this church to have revival services. And I'm sitting there, and I'm a little distracted. I got a girlfriend with me that night. And we're just sitting there talking, and preacher gets up. God moves in that service. That young preacher, about 23 years old, just started pastoring that church. He got under a burden. The evangelist sat right there and never got to, go, not, never got to come up and preach. Because God got into that preacher. And he started testifying. And started pouring his heart out. Some of you out there are lost without God. And he began to share how God got a hold of his heart. And he, I mean, he preached the heart. He found himself out on top of the communion table. I will not demonstrate. But he was out on top of the communion table. And I mean, leaning like this and just preaching and giving his whole heart. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden that thing about seven minutes came back to me and God got a hold of me and showed me if I would have died tonight, I would bust hell wide open. And then I mean the conflict got on. I gripped the pew in front of me and I thought, if I go forward, what will people say? I've already been baptized. My papa's the pastor of the church. My daddy is the Sunday school teacher. My mama, she plays the piano and, uh, and she teaches Sunday school. And we're supposed to be good kids in a Christian school. If I go forward what will people think and say but then God the Holy Ghost finally brought me to my senses and showed me that what people think is not worth going to hell over and I'm telling you friend I came down that aisle and gave my life to Christ and he saved me and I thank him for it but I hadn't got over it as you can tell I haven't got over it God has been so good 
every once in a while, I'll just get on, go down memory's lane. When I go home for Thanksgiving, one of my little traditions, I get in my car and I make a beeline to that little old church up there on the hill. And in that little old church, it's now another church. Some other church took it. And that church closed years ago. But on Thanksgiving morning, I put my car in park. And I just sat there and I look at those double doors. And I remember that night. And I would say, and I've said this many times, God, that's where I found you. And that's where you found me. And I want to tell you something, friend. That's a God moment. But your life is to be full of those God moments where God touches and God calls you. I remember when he called me to preach. I remember on the second floor of Coberly, uh, 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 Coberly uh, uh, Residence Hall there at Pensacola Christian College where God called me to preach. I was a sophomore wanting to go into business and God just reeled it in and said, no, you're going to be my preacher. I remember bending down by the sink there in my dormitory and I said, oh God, if you want me to preach, I'll do that. Every time I go by that place, I'll see that second floor and the memories will come back to me. So it's God moments. Points of reference where God moved and God worked in my life. There was a special place where I used to escape there while I was in college. A room off the side. It was a stairwell. Nobody ever went in there. I thought that might make a good place to go pray. And so I would, everybody was going to see you later. I'd scoot in there. Close the door. I'd get on my face and I'd play to God and I'd ask God to put his hand on me. Oh, God, give me your power. God, help me overcome. And I would seek God's face. That's a special place right there in the Dale Horton Auditorium. A little special place where I'd get alone with God. That's so interesting. Years later, after God called me to preach, gave me sons and daughter, we would go back to Pensacola and they would have, they would have camp, Christian camp. Right there in that auditorium. Kenny Baldwin, great evangelist, was up preaching. Pastor Kenny Baldwin pouring out his heart. My son got under conviction. My son felt the call to preach. And he walked up to me during an invitation and said, Daddy, he said, I believe God wants me to be a missionary. I believe God wants me to preach. I need to pray. I said, I know just the place. Get out of my way. Get, get out of my way. We're going to find our way to that place. I did not kick them. I'm just exaggerating. Admittedly. But I got in there and I closed the door. I said, Son, let's, let's pray right here. And let's ask God to seal this thing and bless you. And you know, I walk away from that and I think, Boy, there's some special places I can go to. Here, God touched me. Here, God called me. Here, my God called my own son to preach. And in and, and just special places like that. Yours and mine are filled with moments where God touched your life. And when the devil comes around kicking you around like an old can and telling you're not worth much, you know what you need to do? You need to remember, no, 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 there's one who loves me. And there's one who's done something for me. And I want, to know, I want you to know I can count the blessings, old devil. And I mean just start naming them out loud and praising Jesus. And those demons will scurry. Why? They know you've got the victory because it was God that gave you the victory. It wasn't my accomplishments or, you know, my earned doctorates, which I haven't got yet. Uh, listen, it's not about all the things we accomplish. It's what God accomplishes in us. As weak and wounded, wretched sinners... God did that for us. Those special moments. That old boy 
He's got to go home. What's he thinking? I've got to get home. It was good. May God make Central Baptist a place filled with the goodness and grace and presence of God that no matter how far you travel, you'll remember a pastor, a Pastor Bloom, who was not afraid to herald the truth and tell you that God loves you and wants to save your soul. You'll not get away from that. I don't care how fancy other churches get. You'll not get away from that. But number three, I close with this. Close quickly. He couldn't get away from the love of Father, blessings of home, but he couldn't get away from the conviction of sin. I mean, first thing in his mind is not, I've got to get a new job. You know, this thing is not working out for me. And because of the famine, maybe I could travel somewhere. No, he was at the bottom. And what did he say? He said, I will arise and go to my father, verse 18, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned. Boy, we need to hear that again, do we not? Sin is the problem. Sin is the cancer that's eating us alive. Sin is why there's no revival. This boy has come to the end of himself. And he said, I've sinned. He's not pointing to some jerk that wouldn't even give him something to eat when he gave him a job to feed the pigs. He's not blaming the circumstances of a famine that made everything so miserable and you're just angry at the world and angry at the circumstances. No, no, no. He said, it's me, O oh Lord. It's me, O oh Lord. It's me. Oh, I have sinned. Boy, glad is the day when God brings you face to face with your own sin. You ever had the Holy Spirit dog your trail? You know what that means, don't you? You run, 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 they're still there. Still a napping, still a barking, still a coming. Boy, I've had the Holy Spirit do that to me over and over. And I mean, there's times that I don't get sleep because the Holy Spirit's dogging me. I just, I just don't sleep. Not until I get out of that bed, get on my face, and plead the help and mercies of God. You ever been there? We'd all be a mess if he didn't. We'd all be a mess. I remember one time I had this opportunity to preach. It was at a camp meeting church. Now, I'm totally honored to be here today. I mean, this is a fine church. I can tell. You've been so receptive. But to get a chance to preach at one of those camp meeting kind, you know what I'm talking about. Brother Ann, you know what I'm talking about, Pastor Blue. Oh, they go nuts, right? They say, praise the Lord, preach it, brother! You know, and, and, and this, this pastor asked me to come preach for him, and I thought, man, wow. And so I, I got the chance to, and I was pastoring just down the road, not too far. But I knew this was a camp meeting church. And so when I got to preaching, it got good. I mean, boy, they started, amen, preach it, brother. And so I really got into it. I got caught up. I mean, boy, I was like going at it like, like Billy Sunday, you know, you'd imagine. And I mean, I mean, I was preaching. And, uh, and then I got to one of my stories and I said, oh, but let me tell you what happened, friend. Uh, the God of heaven uh, came down upon me. And I began to give this great story. Boy, they was right there with me. But I added just a little bit to the story. Exaggerated. That's all. 
That's all. That's why I was telling you I didn't want to exaggerate and I was kicking people a while ago. I, I, I learned from that. I did. I added to the story. And it didn't bother me at the time because, boy, I was getting my point across and people were amening and having a good time. And, and I just, boy, I let them have it, you know. But I added to the story. I closed my Bible and got in my car, shook a bunch of hands, you know, after I got done and, 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 and began to make my journey home. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit... Um, you, you didn't say that just right. I know, Lord, I, and boy, that's when the argument and the debate starts. Lord, I know, I, you know, but for your glory, Lord, for your glory, I, I gave all. Yeah, but you, you added to the story. It's called lying. It's called what? It's called lying. And the Holy Spirit just began to deal with me about that over and over and over. Finally, I got sick of it. Sick, you get sick of conviction. Sick. David talks about his own bones waxing old because of sick of conviction. And so I got on my knees and I said, oh, Lord, I, you're right. I won't, I won't ever, 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 ever let that happen again. God, I'm so sorry. And in my conviction and in my heaviness, I said, Lord, forgive me. The Lord said, but who did you lie to? Ooh. Do, do, do you mean, and this, this is how you wrestle with the Lord, no doubt. Do, do you mean I've got to go back and got to ask for forgiveness? Now, Lord, you know my heart. It was for your glory. I have been, Lord, free. No, no, no. You, you lied. You lied to them. Go back and make it right. Now, I want to tell you all something. God didn't speak to me audibly like that, but it was clearer than that. I knew what I had to do. Did I, did I say that right? I didn't hear it audibly, but it was clearer than that. See, Holy Spirit's conviction is clear stuff. You know. You know what you've got to do. So I thought, okay, I've got to pull this off. I've got to go back to the church. I pastor a church, so how am I going to catch them in church? And Wait a minute, they're a camp meeting church. Here's what I thought. They're a camp meeting church. They always go longer than my church. So I'll preach a fast one. Get in the car few minutes not not many miles down the road i'll go down there and uh, and I'll, I'll just drop in the back of the service and maybe get a word of testimony in so that's my plan sure enough that one wednesday night i finished up my sermon i mean i got done fast i don't know what i preached probably didn't make a bit of sense because i was all about one thing got to get done got to go over there and so I got in my car, and I drove, and I, got, I come into the back of the church, and I sit on the back pew, straight up, they're still going at it, still praising the Lord, still preaching. And I was like, okay, this is working out so far. The pastor noticed I walked in, and, hmm, I wonder what this is about. And so sure enough, when the service ended, he says, um, Brother David, uh, good to see you. Mean, his wheels were turning. He got the, what is he doing here, you know? And he said, do you have something to say? And I stood up and I said, yes, sir. I, I, I do. Well, then, and this is where he kicked it in. Oh, then you come on down here. And I'm like, oh, God, God, just stay right here, you know. And he's like, no, you come on down here. And that's what I was thinking. And I thought, oh. And so I had to walk all the way up. It's interesting. God took me back to the very spot where I did it. He said, uh, stand right here and... Uh, Tell us what's on your mind and heart. And this is what he did. Now, he's a camp meeting preacher. They don't fool around. He's intimidated. And I'm, 
I'm going up there like that. And I said, well, um, when I was preaching here the other day, I said, um, I got in a big way and I added things. And folks, it wasn't true. I lied. God the Holy Ghost told me I got to make this right or I can't go on in my own life and ministry. Amen. Something of that nature. When I got done, I've already felt the low go, it's over. Let me tell you what he did. This preacher who's intimidating sat over here like this. He walked up and he said, put his arm around me. All right, church, you heard what he said. Now, here's what I want you to do. If you are in favor of forgiving this man, I want you to say amen. I'm in the whole crowd. Whoosh, amen. I'm feeling pretty good right now. He said, all right, that's not enough. I want you, Brother Gamble, go down here in the front. I want you to stand right there. I want every member of this church come by, and you're going to tell Brother Gamble that you personally forgive him. Everybody? He made me face everybody that I lied to. But you know what happened? They were playing the music. It got on camp meeting time. It got to be camp meeting time. They loved on me. They just said, Brother Gamble, I appreciate your heart. God bless you, son. I forgive you. I forgive you. And I mean, I'm like, I forgive you too. You know? And we're just, it's camp meeting. I've never been so loved that I can remember. One by one, they just came and loved on me. Told me that they forgave me. God bless you, brother. And the more they told me, the better it got. Now, I found it to be true about God's Holy Spirit. When He deals with your sin, and it's in your face, and you know you're guilty, we think that God enjoys that process and enjoys the humiliation, but that's not what He enjoys. He enjoys, go get the robe, go get the ring, go get the fatted calf. Let's celebrate. You see, God wants you to face your sin and confess your sin so He can embrace you again. That's why. Listen, you know what heaven is? Heaven's for sinners that have been forgiven who gets to enjoy for an eternity the loving embrace of God. There was a time in my life when I was condemned and undone and lost and on my way to hell. But He turned it around with the blood of Jesus Christ and He saved my soul so that I can enjoy God for an eternity. Wow, that's love. And that's why the Holy Spirit does His work and draws you and convicts you. He's trying to get you to enjoy what God has in store for you. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry yeah, everything. Your sin. All of it. To God prayer.